Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. We want to perpetuate a profitable family business. Two mantras which have guided us are small is beautiful and keep it simple, stupid. And if you can keep the business small and simple, you might just hand it to the next generation. Alexander Hoare is the first of the 11th generation of the Hoare family to run Britain's oldest private bank, C. Hoare & Co. He's also a pioneer in the social and impacting space and a founding partner of Snowball. I first approached Alexander to talk about what it was like to run a business with such a rich history. In the end, we talk about much more than that. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation on why human experience matters. Well, it's an absolute delight for me to be able to welcome Alexander Hoare to Why It Matters. Uh, Alexander, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Where are you based right now? Give us some context. Uh, What part of the world are you in? I'm sitting in rural Hampshire, not far from Overton. Wonderful. And you've been there for a while? Has that been your home for a long time? We were very, very lucky. We moved here and, and, and found a house and, and fix it up for, for reasons of my son's education. But it all happened just in time for the pandemic. Fantastic. Good timing indeed. Now, you're uh, chairman of the partners and senior partner at uh, C. Hoare & Co. And that bank is one of the oldest privately owned banks uh, in the UK. I wonder, if could you give us some of the founding origins and the history of the bank? Uh, it's the oldest, actually. So my ancestor, my great eight times grandfather, 11 times ancestor, completed his apprenticeship as a goldsmith in 1672. And, and we take that as our founding, although he bought into a slightly older business. And At the time, it was unsafe to carry your wealth on you or have it at home. So people looked for safes to put it in. And the goldsmiths had the best safes. And so the valuables piled up in the goldsmith safes. And there were lots of goldsmiths at that time. And so the goldsmiths had to do something. And and what they did is they started lending. And the business of banking was just born between about 1660 and 1690. Nobody planned it. It happened. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Fantastic. And what a history. I mean, 350 years, uh, 12 generations. What would you say that has given you, that has taught you as a business? And you look back at that wonderful tenure. What are the kind of main headlines of things that you've learned in that huge amount of time? We're lucky to have a a very good archive and um, there are lots of lessons in it. I think the prime lesson, though, is to stick to the knitting. We've made the odd detour, and they've largely been disastrous. <laughs> we find that retail banking is something we, we know and understand. Very good. And there's obviously been an explosion recently of challenger brands in retail banking over the last decade or so, um, you know, Monzo's and the Metro's and the Starlings and such like. Um, how has an established incumbent with such a rich history maintained its relevance during that wave of competition? The way I see it is... So the technology of banking is changing, the pace of change is accelerating, but the human needs of the customers really don't change from generation to generation very much. And so we focus on those needs which we think we can meet. Other banks focus on other needs and, and we muddle along. And the heart of those needs for you, what are the, what are the, what has been the consistent needs that you that, that play to the strengths of the bank? 
that we um, treat humans as humans. We believe that humans like to be treated as humans, not as one of a million numbers. Mm. And, and then we do really complicated things like answering the telephone. It's not, it's not rocket science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The kind of humanity of it all. We kind of lose sight of that, don't we, sometimes in the, in the complexity of, of, as you say, technology. Uh, and you've just touched on two of my mantras, actually. So we want to perpetuate a profitable family business. Two mantras which have guided us are small is beautiful and keep it simple, stupid. And if you can keep the business small and simple, you might just hand it to the next generation. But also by keeping it small and simple, it's much more customer friendly. And how often would you engage with your client base to kind of keep a consultation with them to kind of keep in check with with their needs versus the what, the operating principles of the business? So the relationship managers are in continuous contact with customers and they're probably the first or second source of intelligence. Actually, um, pool of customers who are our, our cousins and they're very good at telling us if something's going wrong or something we need to do. Um, but we do also do market research. We have a very high net promoter score. We focus on that. So one way or another, we I like to think we are aware of our customers' needs. We can't always meet all of them. And why do you think there has been this kind of resurgence of of retail banking in the last ten years? What what has, what's been going on in the industry that have has led to the to the to the challenges coming onto the market? So I don't think there's been a resurgence in retail banking. What there has been is a lot of new entrants and. I think that's driven by the sort of coming together of the technological capacity to to compete and the idea that the retail banks really haven't innovated very much and, and need a bit of a shake up and and so that's that I think is what is happening and um, from our point of view interestingly sort of 20 years ago we were worried about being able to compete with technology the technology requirements of being a bank but I think that they've become more modular and more flexible and more dynamic than they were. And, and I think I think being a small bank is not such a bad place to be now. And obviously the bank's experience of riding the waves of change has obviously been important as well. Has there been particular moments of history where you've thought, actually, there's some things here that we can borrow and we can lean on in our understanding and knowledge that help us kind of make sense of a changing market that we're in now? I think we've been lucky, actually. So it's it's great to say small is beautiful, but you don't want to be too small. And we have seen one or two banks fall by the wayside in, in my life. I don't think we've brought any special insight to technology. Yeah, okay. Tell me about the bank's purpose. I think I read somewhere that the, the heart of what the bank is all about is good bankers and being good bankers and good citizens. Tell me a little bit about where that came from and the sort of family's involvement to shape and define that purpose. So it came from consultation with um, with the staff actually and the point is that at any time there are good banks and there are good citizens but there are not very many trying to be both at the same time mm. Mm. and so we we landed on this and and then you hold your breath and think well will it actually land and to our pleasure actually uh, it was readily adopted across the organization and we've been driving purpose through what we do and we are well on the path to becoming a B Corporation. Ah. And I think it is of strategic importance to have a, a clear purpose. And what does it mean in practice to be a good banker and a good citizen? How does it affect the day-to-day? Well, first and foremost, we look after our customers and our staff in a pandemic. And not in a pandemic, we look after our customers and our staff. And we pay our taxes. But then it gets more interesting. 
we tithe like 10% of our profits to our charitable trust. And in the charitable trust, we can do a lot of good citizenship um, on themes we choose to be active in. And also provide um, a product for our customers to do philanthropy. It's a donor advice fund, and that's moved over £100 million in the last 10 years to the charitable sector. And then there are things which are not so measurable. It's it's connecting up customers with other customers who are on the same paths. The convening power is, is, is very interesting. And has it played a role in the bank's sort of marketing and employee engagement as well? I mean, you talk about it coming out of the staff as a request. Has it been played back in? What have you noticed its impact been across the, the workforce and also into your client, client base as well? Well, the staff have bought in and they tell us that. And they also tell us in a staff engagement and happiness survey where they are more engaged and more happy than they were two years ago. So... I think that's working. And we encourage the staff also to do philanthropy, both sort of financial giving through um, Give As You Earn, where we double match what they give, and half the staff take advantage of that. And we encourage them to volunteer through time, and quite a lot of work going on there too. Business purpose driven by sustainability has become a bit of a divisive issue at the moment. Um, I think there's there's been a lot in the press around Unilever and, and, a, and a year or so ago around Danon as well, where significant investors and shareholders have basically said that the pursuit of purpose is a bit of a distraction from the primary goal of maximising profitability and creating shareholder value. Why does purpose matter to you specifically? Why have you, why have you as such a kind of historic bank pursued purpose? Uh, and 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 in in that context of uh, creating shareholder value and profitability, obviously you're not you're not owned by shareholders; you're privately owned. But but in that debate around the the purpose of purpose, what's your what's your sense of what's going on and 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 why it remains important to you and the bank? So I would dispute your primary goal, uh, which you said is to maximise short term profits. Um, an awful lot of quoted companies believe that. We are free of the tyranny of quarterly and annual earnings cycles. And we're not trying to maximise profits. We've never tried to maximise profits. We're trading with uh, joint and several unlimited liability. And we're trying to optimise risk for quality, actually. Mm. And we do lots of things which are not profit maximising. We reject perfectly wealthy customers. We reject transactions because we want relationships. And the point is that you don't have to maximise profits. You in, in our experience, you do the right things, enough profits come through the line at the bottom. Profit is a residual, actually. Furthermore, it turns out that not trying to pursue profits is actually a very profitable strategy. And I guess it, there's an importance there about thinking for the for the long term rather than the short term as well. I think the shareholder is obviously thinking about the quarter, as you say, the quarterly cycle and the yearly cycle. But would you hold a, a longer perspective and would experience dictate that you needed you need to hold a longer perspective? Absolutely. So you, you come back to the partner's mission, which is to perpetuate a profitable business. By definition, it's got to be sustainable in, in, in all dimensions, in, not just in, say, the environment or, or whatever. It's got to be sustainable if you're going to perpetuate it. And you say you're on the path to becoming a B Corp. What, what triggered that? What was going on within the business that, that you felt that there was, it was an important step to make? It followed on from wording our purpose to be good bankers and good citizens. 
We then hired a, a cousin to drive it through the organization. And she did quite a lot of the getting, the sort of buying of hearts and minds. And then the next logical step was to kind of certify it. And you also, you're quite heavily involved in impact investing. Could you say a little bit about that, uh, what it is, and, and your work with Snowball? So I had a sabbatical, at which I came back from just over 10 years ago. And in our charitable trust, the Golden Bottle Trust, there was, there still is, an endowment. Whilst uh, we concentrated quite hard on giving money well, which is not easy, by the way, I was worried about were we investing the endowment well? Was it also contributing to to the cause? And my partners, who are the co-trustees, said, well, why don't you take 10% of the endowment and see what you can do? And quite quickly, they said, well, actually, I think you should do, <laughs> take 20%. And so we built a small portfolio of slightly, slightly unusual at that time investments. And then one of the learnings was that this is not a sort of part-time thing you can really do in your spare time. And so in 2015, we joined up with another family's charitable trust, Panapa, and we were quickly joined by three other families, and Project Snowball was created. And, and we employed staff, and we did a proper due diligence on our investments, proper asset allegation, proper investment performance recording and, and all the stuff of the we'd expect in professional fund management business and uh five years after that we created a, a snowball as it's called which is a, a conventional general partner limited partner fund. we have 26 uh investors in this fund it doubled last year assets under management now we just need to double it and double it again and it might actually become profitable Fantastic. And what you said you were on a sabbatical and you came out of the sabbatical wanting to kind of review the effectiveness of the investments. What was going on at that point? What was what were the, the itches that you were you were looking to scratch? I was intrigued. I, I noticed it was populated by uh largely populated by successful people who had very good um well meaning and, and good instincts. And and you know, I wanted to I wanted to spend time with these people in trying to address some of the problems of the world and United Nations SDGs were coming along and quite clearly the governments don't have enough money to do it and charities don't have enough money to do it. To, to actually hit these SDGs, you're going to have to move mainstream finance. And so Snowball's mission is to change the way the investment management industry invests. So it takes account of the impact as well as the risk and return. And if we succeed in that, I think the world will be a very much better place than, than if we don't. That focus on improvement, that I guess that's born again out of your, the context of your purpose and the sort of family dynamic of the business. Has there been a sort of golden thread through the sort of 350 years of the business that has led you to see to connect that ongoing interest in, in making a difference? So then you, you come back to the archive and, and the short answer is yes, but over the 11 generations, 12 now, the partners have been very, very catalytic. So if you go back 300 years, they, we were very instrumental in the founding of the first hospital paid by subscriptions. It was, the, uh, it was then the Westminster Hospital. It's now the Chelsea Westminster Hospital. It was founded uh, you know, at 37th Street by the bankers at Hall's Bank. 
And, and that goes on and on and on. Schools and universities, many, many churches were built. Uh, the country's first hospice, uh, which I'm a patron, was, was, was set up. So yes, I think there's a long history of trying to fix social problems, using the bank to fix social problems. Yeah, and that and that that does. I mean, for someone standing outside of the investment world, that does feel like a contrary to the mainstream of 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 how the industry works. Where you know you get naysayers saying that they, you know, I think there was a something I read about Unilever in particular and a focus on mayonnaise and mayonnaise. When you you're trying to fight over the purpose of mayonnaise, you've kind of lost the plot. But but here you're thinking about purposes actually having something that is more universally significant. And actually has a credible consequence as a as an output from it. Uh, yeah, I would offer some defence to Unilever. I think Paul Pullman did a fantastic job, and and I recommend his book Net Positive. The difficulty arises is when when there's a bit too much talk and not enough action. Mm. And so what we try to do is the action, and generally speaking, we're below the radar. Don't talk about it very much. And that's a conscious decision. I mean, there's with all the kind of groundswell of interest in purpose. I mean, there'd be a lot of flag wavers be encouraging you to talk more about it. But you're consciously wanting to keep it under the radar and just get on with the job. Yes, it's not as if we need to boast. You know, why would we do that? We've got business to run as well. Yeah. Thanks for your time. We have this final slot, um, Alexander, where we we encourage our uh, listeners to look at new uh, sources of inspiration from from our from our guests is there anything that you have watched read listened to recently that you think our listeners should uh, look at i'd like to make a shameless plug for intermission youth which is a, a drama charity i chair it takes kids from very deprived boroughs around london and turns their lives around by drama primarily shakespeare um, oh, wow. So just before Christmas, they put on at the Chelsea Theatre a performance of Juliet and Romeo. And, and they're doing one shortly on, on the pandemic in Shakespearean times. So Shakespeare have got things to say on pandemics. And, and it's kind of improbable. You wouldn't expect these street kids to, to gravitate to Shakespeare. But if you think about it, Julius Caesar has got knife crime. Romeo and Juliet is all gang violence. And it's been going for 15 years now and has some tremendous success stories. Fantastic. And are they due to perform this year? Is, where, would, where would listeners be able to, to, to see yeah, them? Their main, their main thing is end of November. It's the, the new cohort put on something in the end of November. Fantastic. Well, we'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, Alexander, thank you so much for coming on Why It Matters. It's been lovely to chat to you about the history of, of the bank and uh, to get your perspective on purpose. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>